The Old Testament book of Leviticus is probably the least read book in the Bible. Many people of faith desire to read Leviticus about as much as I hunger for green peas, which is not at all. Yuck! With apologies to all the pea growers across America, I gag at the sight of green peas. However, the spiritual value of Leviticus far exceeds the nutritional value of any vegetable medley. Levita yuck, said one person I know, and she loves the Bible. But understandably, she finds Leviticus much more difficult to swallow than Psalms or the Gospels. However, my goal is to hear people say, I love Leviticus. Say it with me. I love Leviticus. You will, after a deeper study of this amazing book from God's law. I'm Ron Jones. This is something good. Hello and welcome to this Monday edition of Something Good with Dr. Ron Jones, lead pastor at Atlantic Shores Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Wherever you are and however you may be listening, thanks for spending part of your day here with us. Today, Ron takes us to what he calls the Handbook of Holiness, the book of Leviticus. It points us to the holiness of God, encourages us to live holy lives, and reminds us of the sacrifice Jesus made to spare us from the eternal consequences of sin. Online, you'll find us at somethinggoodradio.org where you can listen to the program on your schedule or make a safe and secure donation to the ministry. That's somethinggoodradio.org. From his teaching series, Route 66, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible, here's Ron with part two of his message, Leviticus, Worshiping a Holy God. And the Israelites made these sacrifices and these offerings continually. You read the book of Leviticus and you read the Old Testament and it seems as though the blood never stops flowing. But it was all a picture of the once for all sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make as the Lamb of God, the unblemished Lamb of God upon the cross. And in doing so, fulfilling the Old Testament sacrificial system and eliminating the need for it. That's why as New Testament believers, we don't have to bring our animal or grain sacrifice to the Lord every every, uh, week as the Old Testament Israelites did. But part of what this repetition and this continuation of sacrifice in the Old Testament did for the Israelites was it ingrained this into their psyche and into their culture because they were waiting for the coming of Christ. So it should have been very obvious that when Jesus came, and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Boom! They download all of this from their understanding of the Old Testament and what they had been practicing for centuries. And so let me just be very clear. As New Testament believers, we're not required to make sacrifices for God to atone for our sins. That's not the idea here. Rather, we place our faith in the sacrifice Jesus made for us on the cross, he is the substitutionary lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of that is powerfully and beautifully pictured in the book of Leviticus and through the, uh, the offerings. Are you still with me? How you doing with that I love Leviticus thing? All right, it gets better. Let's go now to Leviticus chapter 23 and move from the five offerings or sacrifices 
to seven Jewish feasts or appointed times that they were to mark on their calendar. There were seven feasts or appointed times on the Jewish calendar that also played this, an important role in uh, Israel's religious life. Leviticus 23 begins with the Lord saying to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. These were kind of like holidays on their calendar. And observant Jews still celebrate these seven feasts. Now, there's prophetic implication here. I'm going to show you how when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, we call it his first advent, he fulfilled the first four Jewish feasts. Many Bible teachers, including myself, believe that at his second advent, his second coming, he'll fulfill the remaining three Jewish feasts. And these are powerful pictures and remembrances and appointed times and calendar celebrations that, again, ingrained into the uh, Hebrew people these pictures that would be ultimately fulfilled in uh, the Christ who is to come, who we believe is Jesus. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the first four feasts. By the way, uh, the first four feasts happened in the spring and the other three feasts happened in the fall, and there was some time between them during the summer where there was no uh, appointed time on the calendar. Keep that in mind. But Passover began the appointed feasts in the spring and reminded the Israelites of their freedom from Egyptian slavery. Uh, Remember that story about the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. The Feast of Unleavened Bread followed immediately after Passover and lasted for seven days, during which time the, uh, the Israelites would eat bread with no yeast in it uh, as a uh, remembrance of their time when they fled Egypt in haste. At the beginning of the harvest, the spring harvest, the Feast of first fruits provided a way for Israel to express their gratitude to God at the front end of the harvest time. And then at the end of harvest, 50 days later, came the Feast of Pentecost. Okay, first fruits at the beginning of harvest, and then at the end of the spring harvest, you have uh, Pentecost, again, offering thanksgiving to God for his bountiful provision. Now, how did Jesus fulfill these first four feasts? Listen to this. Jesus fulfilled the first four feasts at his first coming, He fulfilled the Passover as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was crucified on Passover. Read the Gospels. He was sharing the Passover meal in Jerusalem with his disciples on the night before he was crucified. And the reason he said, now is the time, was because he was in Jerusalem precisely during Passover. Three days later, he rose from the dead in fulfillment of the first fruits celebration. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, that great chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In my book, Mysteries of the Afterlife, I talk about the seven resurrections of the dead that are talked about in the New Testament, starting with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, leading all the way through the book of Revelation to the end of the age. There are seven different resurrections. Everyone who goes into the grave will rise again from the dead, some to eternal life and some to eternal death. Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection. 
50 days after first fruit, what comes? Pentecost. Now we're in Acts chapter 2. 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, fulfilling the first fruits feast, the Holy Spirit comes and gives birth to the church on the day of Pentecost. And then, of course, uh, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which almost happened simultaneously to Passover and lasted for seven days, is a picture of Jesus and his sinless life that he lived, a life without leaven or sin, uh, leaven being a picture of sin. Uh, powerful, powerful picture. Now, what about these last three feasts that happen in the fall? Uh, starting with the Feast of Trumpets, which, by the way, before we get to the fall, you have this period of time in the summer on the Jewish calendar where nothing is happening, signifying really the time that we're living in right now. We call it the church age between the first and second advent of Jesus. This was pictured more than 3,000 years ago, friends, right here in the book of Leviticus. But these last three feasts happened in the fall, starting with the Feast of Trumpets, which signified the end of the agricultural and uh, festival year. The trumpet blast in the Old Testament alerted the Israelites of many things, but in part that they were entering into a sacred season. The Day of Atonement followed 10 days later after the Feast of Trumpets. Now, this is the annual day when the high priest in the Old Testament would travel into the most holy place on behalf of the children of Israel and make sacrifices and atonement for sin. And then five days later, the Israelites celebrated the seventh and final appointed time or feast. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. And they would celebrate this uh, over a, a seven-day period of time that memorialized their uh, wilderness wanderings as they were heading toward the land that God had promised to them. Now, how will Jesus at his second coming fulfill these three feasts? Still ahead, the rest of Dr. Ron Jones' message, Leviticus, Worshiping a Holy God. Somethinggoodradio.org is the place to go to hear any of Ron's messages on demand. That's somethinggoodradio.org. And when you stop by, check out our digital library, where you can search to find answers to your biblical questions from nearly 30 years of Ron's Bible teaching ministry. You can stream for free and on demand at somethinggoodradio.org. Today, Ron wants to bless you with a new resource that goes along with the series you're hearing now, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. He's written a book by the same title, two beautifully designed hardback editions that cover the Old and New Testament. And both volumes can be yours today as you give your gift of $50 or more. That's volume one and two of Ron's book, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. This is our way of saying thank you for your generous gift to support the ministry of Something Good Radio. Give online at somethinggoodradio.org or over the phone by calling our offices at 757-276-1099 or mail your gift to P.O. Box 6245. Virginia Beach, Virginia, 23456. Now let's get back to Ron for the rest of today's message, Leviticus, Worshiping a Holy God. It starts with the Feast of Trumpets. And at his second coming, which is still prophetically in the future, uh, I like to speak of it as a two-stage event. First, his coming for his church at an event known as the Rapture of the Church. You can read about that in 1 Thessalonians 4. 
uh, seven years later, after seven years of tribulation on this earth, he comes with his church and fights the battle of Armageddon at the end of the age. Both the rapture of the church and the second coming, read about it in 1 Thessalonians 4, Revelation chapter 19, you got the sound of the trumpet, <laughs> the sound of the trumpet. Those events are in fulfillment of the feast of trumpets at Jesus' uh, second coming. And the trumpet blast announces both the coming of the Lord and the awesome day of the Lord that ensues upon the earth at that time. The Day of Atonement also prophetically pictures the second coming of Jesus Christ when Israel, I believe, uh, from a study of the book of Revelation, will recognize Jesus as her Messiah. During the seven years of tribulation, there will be tens of thousands of people, many of them Jewish people, who will come to faith in Jesus Christ. The veil will be lifted from their eyes, and their Day of Atonement will come when they recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And then there's the Feast of Tabernacles, this kind of strange practice of, of uh, uh, living in huts or booths, which pictured their journey onto the Promised Land. You know, Israel has never fully occupied the land that God has promised to them. From as early as the Abrahamic covenant uh, of uh, Genesis 12 or Genesis 15, and you get the dimensions, the geographic dimensions of the land. Even Israel today, since 1945, is a small sliver of land nestled up against the beautiful Mediterranean Sea, but it's a, a, a shadow of uh, all the land that God had promised to Israel. The Feast of Tabernacles will be fulfilled at the second coming of Christ after the Battle of Armageddon when he defeats all of his enemies and he establishes, according to Scripture, Old and New Testament, his millennial reign on this earth, a literal 1,000-year reign. And it's at that time, as Jesus rules and reigns from the throne of David in Jerusalem, that Israel will fully occupy her land and the conflict will be over. The government will be upon his shoulders, and the Prince of Peace will have come. Listen, this is all Leviticus. Are you ready to say, I love Leviticus yet? I certainly am, but I'm not done. I said there are five offerings, seven feasts. Let's go back to that one day of atonement, which from a literary standpoint is the focal point, almost. Chapter 16. And let me give you, you, you go read it on your own, but let me just summarize this Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest was given access to the Holy of Holies. Now, Aaron had to go through all kinds of observances and uh, regulations and rituals to make himself clean and atone for sin. He brought his own offering as the high priest. But he would not only step through the entrance of the tent of meeting and make his way uh, to the tabernacle and uh, through the uh, holy place, but then he would, he would go past the veil into the most holy place. And there was the Ark of the Covenant. And there was the presence of God. Once a year, the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. And observant Jews still celebrate Yom Kippur today. It's a very sacred celebration in Jewish life. Uh, Leviticus chapter 16 tells us that one of the things that Aaron was to do, the high priest was to do, was as he came to the entrance of the tent of meeting, he brought two goats with him, male goats without blemish. 
And one of the goats would be sacrificed, a blood sacrifice. He was to kill the goat, sprinkle the blood on the altar, carry some of the blood back to the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the people. Here's what's interesting about the other goat, though. He was to take that goat to the edge of the camp, place his hands on the goat in a symbolic way of transferring the sins of the people to this goat, and then he released the goat outside of the camp, cast the goat outside of the camp, and the goat was never to come back to the camp. It's called the scapegoat. <laughs> you ever heard that phrase? You know, I, I wanna, we need a scapegoat for this. We need a scapegoat for that. You know what a scapegoat is, is culturally? It's blaming some innocent party for the faults, mistakes, or sins of somebody else. We need a scapegoat. And it comes from Leviticus chapter 16. But here's the idea. Jesus is simultaneously pictured in these two sacrifices. One, the blood sacrifice that atones for our sins. The other, he's our scapegoat. All of the blame and the shame that goes along with your sin and mine was cast as far from us, well, what does the Bible say? As far as the east is from the west, he casts our sins and remembers them no more. Pictured, yes, hallelujah, pictured in the scapegoat. <laughs> now can you say, I love Leviticus? I mean, this is incredible stuff, friend. Pictured more than 3,000 years ago in this mysterious book that we rarely read, but the pictures of what Christ has done for us is so powerful. Let me tell you something. A little moment of confession here. I need a scapegoat. Because I'm guilty. And mean no offense, but you need a scapegoat too. Because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God doesn't just look the other way from our sin and say, oh, boys will be boys and girls will be girls. No, the high holy standard is set forth in the book of Leviticus. And he, does, he doesn't grade on a curve. Be holy for I am holy. We're guilty as charged. But praise God, he loves us enough to provide a blood atonement for our sin through his son, Jesus Christ, and simultaneously for his son to be our scapegoat. And when the devil, amen, when the devil comes around and tries to bring that blame and all that shame back on you for what you know you're guilty of, some sin you committed in the past, some life, you know, uh, what was, maybe something you did yesterday, last week, you just say, listen, devil, <laughs> I have a scapegoat. His name is Jesus. And he took all the blame and all the shame and cast my sins as far as the east is from the west and said, that goat, that shame and that blame, that ain't never coming back into my camp here. That's how we live as believers in Jesus Christ. And the fact that all of these pictures point to what Christ has done for us, friends, as believers in Jesus and followers of him, this should compel us to clean up our lives, to live holy lives, uh, to uh, not let any defilement 
in this world come close to us. Uh, to say to any unholy thing, yuck. Not Leviticus. No, I love Leviticus. But there ought to be a holy yuck in our spirit toward anything that is unholy in the presence of God. And we're shrinking the distance between our positional holiness in Christ and our practical holiness. And we're becoming more and more like Him as we give praise and honor to our scapegoat, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now say it with me. I love Leviticus. And more than that, I love the author of Leviticus and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and loves us enough to do that. Thanks so much for being with us for today's Something Good radio message, Leviticus, Worshiping a Holy God. And I'm pleased to welcome in Dr. Ron Jones to the studio. Ron, there's a lot here in the book of Leviticus, more than many of us would have guessed. The repetition and the reason for it, the holiness of God, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's talk a little more about some of these ideas as we wrap things up here on Something Good radio. Yes, and thanks, Brian. I actually like what you said at the close of yesterday's program. You mentioned the reason why God often repeats himself to us, and you said it's because repetition helps you remember, and remembering helps you reform. That idea is much like what God said when he told us to meditate on his word all the time in our going out and our coming in. All the time, uh, saturate yourself in God's word. And it's because we are forgetful people, Brian. Uh, we walk away from the mirror and we forget what we even look like. But repetition helps us have a recall, a greater recall, which helps us make better choices. And it helps us grow in our faith. Now, let me close by mentioning something about the sacrifices the Israelites uh, were asked to make, sacrifices that ultimately point to the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf. We may read the book of Leviticus and think that the animal sacrifices and feasts and all the rest of it must have been hard to do. And you know what? I'm sure it was. But every time the Israelites came to worship God, they had to bring a sacrifice. In other words, they were reminded over and over again that if they wanted to worship God, to enter into his holy presence, a blood sacrifice was required to atone for the worshiper's sin. All of this foreshadowed Jesus' once-for-all blood sacrifice on the cross. When the time came for the shadow to go away and for the reality to show itself, well, the repetition paid off, at least for some. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This New Testament concept, echoed by John the Baptist, is a flashback to Leviticus. Yes, Leviticus is repetitive, and yes, it is our handbook on holiness, but it's also a serenade to sacrifice, the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. It's a substitutionary sacrifice, and this is what makes the book of Leviticus beautiful and well worth reading. That's Dr. Ron Jones with some great final thoughts on the holiness of God and the enormous sacrifice Jesus made to redeem mankind from sin. Before we go, Ron, tell us what's in store for us tomorrow as you continue your teaching series, Route 66, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. Brian, up next is the book of Numbers, or what is sometimes called the book of Murmurings. Uh, this is where we see how 
Well, a simple two-week trip from Egypt to the Promised Land ended up taking the Israelites 40 years. Lots of stubbornness, lots of cycles of disobedience, lots of grumbling and complaining. <laughs> all of it sounds familiar, doesn't it? We all do that from time to time, and it keeps us from getting where God wants to take us. Well, there's plenty of practical lessons for all of us in the book of Numbers, and that's where I'm heading next time on the ultimate road trip through the Bible and right here on Something Good Radio. Join us then for Something Good when Dr. Ron Jones shares his message, Numbers, Wilderness Wanderings. For Ron and the entire team here at Something Good Radio, I'm Brian Davis saying God bless and thanks for listening.